This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. I take it as relatively uncontroversial that two key features of physical sciences are, one, the need for observation, and two, the use of mathematics. Just simply try to imagine what physics would be like without mathematics and experiments. Thus, it might come as a surprise to some that historically, early scientists and even some contemporary philosophers of science today frequently found and still find empirical approaches, that is to say, methods that appeal primarily to observations, at odds with attempts to represent the physical world mathematically. Can you hear me? Am I, is this loud? Okay. In fact, and just for fun, most of you, to a certain degree, probably have been, uh, have been introduced to the conflict between observation and mathematical theory, particularly if you've ever taken a physics class with a lab component. So I'm going to ask you, what is the easiest way to tip off your professor that you haven't gone to lab? You haven't actually done the lab, com uh, the lab work that is short of not turning in your lab assignment. Anyone have a guess? Perfect data. Perfect data. <laughs> Nailed it. Uh, an almost guaranteed way to get an F on uh, the lab part of your science class is to turn in an assignment in which the observed or experimentally de derived results exactly mirror the mathematical predictions. Now, the simple fact is that experimental results obtained in the lab never exactly match what the textbook formulas predict, even if they do approximate them. Now, small discrepancies between theory and observation, as in our physics lab example, can be written off as owing to either acceptable margins of error or even to hidden variables. Still, the question remains, let me see if I get this work here, good. Um, what should one do when observations conflict with the predictions of one's theoretical model in what I'm going to call a massive way. For instance, what if there is an immeasurable difference between what, uh, what we in fact observe and what the model predicts? Or the observations are just the opposite of what the theory claims. Now, I think it's natural enough and that most people's first instincts or inclination is simply to say that the proposed hypothesis or theory must be rejected or at least significantly revised in light of observation. In the jargon of philosophers of science, uh, theories then must be at least empirically adequate. Or to be more exact, a scientific hypothesis is empirically adequate when it successfully predicts the regular occurrence of the given phenomena, which the hypothesis is intended to explain. So here it's just the idea that theories better at least you know, match up with the observations and the experimental results. They don't have to be exact, but they better not be too far off. All right, if they're too far off, you go fiddling with the, uh, um, the theory. Don't go changing your data set. That's actually, there's whole things in scientific you know, ethics and stuff about fiddling with your data there. Um, now, in what follows, I want to consider two cases in the history of science where medieval Muslim uh, physicists or natural philosophers anticipated by no less than 500 years key elements in um, physical theories, I'm sorry, Muslim uh, physicists anticipated by no less than 500 years key elements in physical theories similar to ones discovered during the scientific revolution in Europe. Theories which, in fact, are still with us today. The European theories are, first, the optics of Johannes Kepler, and then second, oh, here we go, try this. Can we hear it? No. No? Yes? Good enough? Or can you hear? Is it coming through? Okay, good. Um, all right. Here. 
Okay, so right. while, while this is going on, I've, I've noticed that my classes are dirty, and so I'm having, uh, they're smudged, and so I'm having problems reading, so. All right, and there I did it again. Are we okay? Can you hear me now? Okay, all right. Um, okay, so um, again, the European theories are first the optics of Johannes Kepler, and second, the three laws of motion of Isaac Newton. The early Muslim scientists whom I consider were confronted, however, with what I'm calling this massive conflict between theory and observation. As a result, they rejected those physical theories that we now consider to be correct. And that ought to be kind of cool. We've got theories that we think are right theories, good theories, and these guys actually knew of them or were close to them, and they thought that they didn't match up with observations. So, Figuring out what those observations are might be kind of fun. All right, so let's give you the outline here. Before turning to my case studies, let me begin with a brief discussion of the idea of science. This is the Greek episteme, the Arabic ilm, or the Latin scientia, as that term was used in the ancient and medieval world. This will be followed by notions of observation, and then mathematicals as they, uh, mathematical models as they were understood in the history of Greek and then medieval Arabic science. Thereafter, I provide the details of my two case studies. First, the optical theory of Ibn al-Haytham, and second, the physics of Ibn Sina or Avicenna. Um, or, uh, at least uh, Avicenna is his name in, uh, as it translates into Latin. Um, I then conclude with a playful musing about what these stories might tell us about the enterprise of science and the history of Islamic science in particular. Okay, so let's turn to science, mathematics, and physical sciences here. Okay, the Holy Grail, oh, by the way, this is the Monty Python Holy Grail there. The Holy Grail of ancient and medieval science was a theory that provided absolute necessity and certainty about the phenomena that it attempts to explain. Theories that appro uh, approximately predict the phenomena and so fall short of absolute necessity and certainty were viewed as being only dialectical in nature rather than truly scientific. Uh, to consider, uh, so I just consider some theories that predict a certain smooth continuous motion. So, say the model uh, predicts something along the lines of what you have here. Um, but in reality, the hypothesis only provides an estimate. And the reality is more uh, jagged, the observations, not the smooth line. Um, such a model, at least to the, science, uh, the ancient and medieval mind, would fall short of the ideal of science, again, for ancient and medieval thinkers. In fact, there you go. So, oops, sorry, not good enough. In fact, theories that gave mere approximations and estimations were on par with ethics, aesthetics, and politics, and so viewed as uh, rising just above opinion, but certainly not reaching the level of true science as it was understood at this time. True science then tells you what always must be the case, at least, again, for the ancient and medieval mind. Additionally, a scientific theory needed to explain the observed phenomena. Ancient and medieval thinkers were fairly broad-minded in what counted as observation. So, for instance, a scientific theory needed to explain both the reality of what is perceived as well as the appearances. So an example might help explain the difference between real versus apparent perceptions. So I want you to consider our perception of a full moon. We perceive a round, illuminated object, and we do so uh, precisely because the moon is spherical and illuminated by the sun. Additionally, however, a full moon appears to be about the size of a small coin held at arm's length. And just to uh, stop here, one of these interesting uh, bits of information, if you take a quarter, this is actually good, and hold it at arm's length, and look at it, this is actually a degree. So if you were wanting to sort of measure out the entire sky, there would be about 360 you know, quarters held at ar arm's length. Uh, that will get you an idea. Um, you can do this just for giggles, but uh, get a full moon. It kind of looks big. Everyone thinks that, yes? 
Now, is a penny kind of small? You can actually eclipse the entire full moon with nothing more than a penny. And so, I mean, you get, you, know, you hold a penny out, you realize that's kind of small in your visual field. And so, we know the moon's, moon's huge, so why does it sort of appear to us large, even though, you know, it's going you know, appear large. Notice it looks like it's about a foot there in that guy's uh, picture, whereas, in fact, it really is only, it's less than a degree. A good scientific theory ought to explain why we perceive the moon as small when we know it's quite large. Okay, so in addition to real and apparent perceptions, ancient and medieval um, scientists recognized a further kind of observed phenomena required for a theory to be empirically adequate. In this case, the phenomena are certain types of opinions. Whether the common opinions which virtually everybody supposedly holds, or at the very least, the opinions of the learned in a given field. Now, while today we might not think of opinions as observed phenomena, there is nonetheless something in what the ancient thinkers were trying to describe, which hopefully another example will make clear. So now, I want you to consider the claim that nothing comes from nothing. I mean, the belief that every event, change, or new phenomena that comes to be has some causal explanation, uh, explanation for its coming to be. Now, if right now a dozen little green men just instantaneously popped up behind me, started doing a line dance, and then just as mysteriously popped out of existence, we would be flabbergasted. We would ask, what happened? Was it holographs, smoke, mirrors? We might ask if the mothership had landed. We might even want to know what sort of mushrooms were in the salad. But what we wouldn't say in a case like that is, well, you know, stuff like that just happens. Uh, we, I mean, it's, so I get them to disappear, good. Um, so we wouldn't just say, well, things like that happened, good. So opinions like you can't get something for nothing, then. I mean, I, I, I mean, good science, you just imagine if somebody, well, you know, <laughs> crap like that happens. Uh, it's like, no, no, no scientist is going to accept that. We're looking for causes. Why are we looking for causes? Well, because we don't believe you can get something for nothing. All right. So opinions like you can't get something from nothing, then, are also among the phenomena that ancient and medieval scientists wanted to respect. Yet, one would be hard pressed to find some immediate observation of such phenomena that grounds them in the way that I can, say, point to the full moon uh, if someone were to ask, so why do you believe the moon is round? I just point. Um, I can't point and say, why do you believe that you can't get something from nothing? Still, it seems reasonable that apart from observations, one would never arrive at such opinions. Hence, there is a sense in which deeply entrenched opinions are, um, are observed phenomena, against, uh, again, at least to the ancient and medieval mind. Um, and I mean, this doesn't really change all that much. You know, if I say that two events, you know, that there's no such thing as absolute simultaneity or something like that, most of us have had at least maybe enough familiarity with Einstein and everything else to realize, oh, there's something to that, even if we couldn't reproduce the arguments. We figure, Einstein said it, there's probably some reason for it, and we would want a theory to somewhat observe that fact. So, I mean, it's not completely left us. All right. In sum, then, for the ancient and medieval scientists, observations uh, might, one, represent the way things in fact are. Two, they might refer to appearances which are somewhat illusory and do not exactly correspond with the way things are. And three, observations might correspond with our widely held and deeply entrenched opinions, at least of the learned within a given field of scientific study. Now, as for the uh, place and application of mathematics in scientific uh, inquiry, it has something of a motley history, certainly when you go back to the ancient and early modern period, um, early medieval periods. The motivation behind the application of mathematics to physics uh, physical investigations 
remains the same today as it did in the historical past. Try to reduce various qualitative features of the world, like sights and sounds, to quantitative features like numbers and measurements. Now, while there was some success in providing mathematical analyses of physical phenomena in the ancient world, uh, in the ancient Greek world, particularly in astronomy and optics, and we'll see uh, this again when we get to the discussion of optics. On the whole, the project, this sort of uh, um, trying to reduce quantitative features to qualitative, uh, qualitative features to quantitative features, never got very much momentum going. Thus, for example, Aristotle, the natural philosopher of the ancient world, consistently appealed to qualitative features like hot, cold, wet, and dry, rather than quantitative ones to explain natural phenomena, even if geometrical tools were present in his discussions of nature. So his preferred sort of explanation was in terms of hot, cold, wet, and dry, uh, which are clearly qualitative features. Additionally, while it's true that Archimedes made advances in statics and hydrostatics, his death at the hands of the Roman is, quips the famous historian of mathematics, Morris Klein, the only contribution the Romans ever made to mathematics and mathematical physics. So kill off the gun, one person who might have made a difference, right? Um, now, this, although they didn't want to kill him, there was a mistake there. But uh, anyway, as it, as it may. The situation, however, changes radically in the medieval Islamic world. Many uh, Muslim philosophers and scientists embraced the new Greek scientific works uh, which were being translated into Arabic. Moreover, uh, they went on and supplemented uh, and augmented those Greek sciences with fresh ideas drawn from their own religious traditions and theology um, or acquired from Persian and Indian sources. Now, among the innovations of the natural, uh, Muslim natural philosophers was an increasing tendency to approach topics of physics quantitatively or mathematically. So now we're going to start our first case study of Elhazen uh, in Latin tradition. All right. This tendency of sort of approaching physical problems mathematically can be seen in my first case study the optics of Ibn al-Haytham. Now, Ibn al-Haytham submitted numerous problems in physics to mathematical analyses, but he is best known for his works on optics. Although approaching problems in optics quantitatively was not new, and again, as I had mentioned, there were some Greek precursors, Ibn al-Haytham's approach combined mathematics and natural philosophy in ways that his Greek predecessors never would have dreamt. Moreover, just to add here, the Quran's de uh, depiction, Surah Nur, the, uh, the, the verse of light, uh, of God in terms of light, or Nur, moved many theologians, philosophers, and scientists to explore the nature of light more deeply. And Nebel Haitham uh, might very well be seen as part of this trend. So it turns out that some of the more interesting discussions, scientific discussions, of light come in Quranic commentaries on this verse where God is described as, he says, God is the light of the heavens and the earth. He's then likened to uh, a light as in a niche. And they, this gave a number of thinkers like Ibn Sina, Al-Ghazali, um, uh, Fakhreddin al-Razi, Mullah Sadra, and others, reason to actually talk about the philosophical and scientific nature of light in these discussions of the Quran. Ibn al-Haytham is pretty much a part of this uh, tradition even though his works are actually in optics text, not in commentaries, uh, or Quran commentaries. Now, in order to appreciate Ibn al-Haytham's contribution, let me begin by quickly outlining what we now consider to be the correct theory of vision, followed by a short account of the Greek background leading up to Ibn al-Haytham. Now, our present understanding of at least the mathematics of vision dates from the optical works of Johannes Kepler. Now, for our purposes, three points are important about Kepler's optics. First, vision requires that light reflected from the object seen enters the eye. So we've got an object, we get light that comes in. Two, the eye functions as a converging 
lens that refracts every light ray that impinges upon the eye, not just some of it. So all the light rays that come in, they are refracted through the eye that functions as a lens. This will be a, a focal point here. And then three, or third, the refracted light rays form a reversed, an upside down image of the object on the retinal wall. So the three elements I want you to consider is that light comes off of objects. In this case, it's a luminous object, but it can be reflected light in the case of colored objects. It hits the eye. The eye works as a converging lens. You get a focal point. The rays cross over. The image is uh, inverted. Okay, so that's th those are the, the, the key elements of our contemporary view. Now, I want you to contrast this modern optical theory with that of ancient Greek optical theories, like that of Euclid. You know. Uh, Euclid's element fame, and Ptolemy, if you know the al uh, almagest or the, you know, the famous sort of astronomer, they also did works on optics. Now, as part of Euclid and Ptolemy's optics, both of them postulated that the eye emits optic rays that form a visual cone. Kind of like back before comics, this would be the scientific version, of, uh, a ray was coming out of your eyes that made a visual cone. Now, the reason for this odd feature of their optics is because the formation of this visual cone allowed for an elegant mathematical explanation for a number of problems related to visual perspective. As for example, why lines appear to converge, or um, why an object appears to be smaller the further it is away from the perceiver. Euclid and Ptolemy's general idea is simply that the smaller the angle through which an object is viewed, the smaller the object appears. So here, imagine this, be, uh, this is the eye. We've got these rays coming out, and we've got the object at one distance. Let's let it go back a little bit. And now it's the same object, same height, but being uh, observed through a smaller angle. And so they say, if the smaller the angle it is, the smaller the object appears. That's why you can, you know, I can squish somebody's head. Sorry about that, but you know, I can uh, do that. Um, oh, didn't actually squish your head, so everything's good. Um, now, since Euclid and Ptolemy's account involves the perceivers transmitting optical rays outwards, it is called an extramission theory of vision. Now, in contrast. Ibn al-Haytham and many of his Muslim intellectual contemporaries rejected this extramission theory. Not the least for uh, okay, sounds like it might be Mike. I'm sure. Uh, not the least reason for which is that these Muslim scientists found the emission of optical rays, that visual cone that's uh, emitting from our you know your eyes, as being simply physically absurd, at least in certain cases. Thus, for example, they observed that. We see the stars above. Yet, so we just imagine you're out on an empty field, look out on the sky, you see you know, this big giant, uh, um, you know, the, the great abyss of space out there, right? Um, yet, says Ibn al-Haytham and others, it's simply physically impossible that whenever you gaze upon the stars on a clear night, you should generate enough optical rays produce a visual cone that virtually is large as half of the visible universe. So if you're having to produce a cone, just go outside, look, and just imagine how much you're going to have to eat to get a cone that's that big, okay? Because this is coming out of you. It's, a, it's supposed to be some physical um, cone here. Okay, or pneuma, they would call her spirit. Okay, now in place of the extramission theory, Ibn al-Haytham developed a new theory of light and intromission theory of light. Now, according to his optics, from every point of a colored body, light either radiates if the body is luminous or is reflected if the body is non-luminous or colored. Moreover, continued Ibn al-Haytham, each ray of light carries with it, as it were, the color of the point from which it emanates. Additionally, he went on, uh, the light forms a cone, the base of which is at the sensible object, uh, and the vertex of which is at the eye of the perceiver. So there's the base of it, and it goes back to the eye of the perceiver here. Um, 
The formation of this cone allows Ibn al-Haytham to exploit the earlier mathematical insights of Euclid and Ptolemy. Um, Ibn al-Haytham, however, placed one very important restriction on the formation of this visual cone. The cone is not formed from every uh, light ray that strikes the eye, but only those that impinge upon the eye at right angles, or 90 degrees. The rays that do not reach the eye at a right angle are, says Ibn al-Haytham, reflected away from the eye and do not enter into the eye. The result of this restriction is that light rays that hit the eye at angles greater than or less than 90 degrees have no effect on the image formed in the eye simply because they never enter into the eye. Now, the reason that Ibn al-Haytham restricted which rays pass through the lens of the eye and which ones are reflected is that he wanted a point-for-point -point image of the sensible object formed on the back of the eye. He wanted to make sure that every point here had some corresponding point there on the back of the eye, and only one point. If all the rays were allowed to enter into the eye and to affect image formation, Ibn al-Haytham feared there would be a distortion of the image that is formed. It would blur. The result would be that even folks with 20-20 vision would experience the world as a blur, as I do as soon as I take my glasses off. By the way, it's kind of cool. As soon as I take my glasses off, the whole world's an impressionist painting. It's kind of neat. So if you like Monet, I, and I do, it's, ooh, it's, so there you go. Um, sorry, it was, I was at the National Museum once uh, watching, uh, looking at the Monets with my father, and my father kept doing this. <laughs> and finally he turns to me and goes, John, all these pictures are blurry. <laughs> Yes, okay. Um, all right, the, fact, the very fact that we experience the world with relative clarity is an empirical phenomenon that Ibn al-Haytham needed to account for and did so by uh, developing a theory that limited the rays forming the image in the eye only to those that enter the eye at right angles. So. He's trying to make sure that his theory comes into, uh, um, is in accord with or empirically adequate as he understood it. Okay. The story, however, turns out to be a bit more complex, and in fact, I think a lot more interesting. For, as I hope to show you, Ibn al-Haytham actually had almost all the elements of our modern theory of vision, but did not consider them relevant since, in his eyes, our current theory of vision involves what I've called a massive conflict with observation. So let's consider what that conflict is. After treating vision in his optics, Ibn al-Haytham turned to the study of the formation of images by lenses. In that section, he considered objects seen through a glass sphere, which is just a special case of a converging lens. Now, at least two of the points that emerge from Ibn al-Haytham's discussion of lenses, of lenses are of interest to us. First, Ibn al-Haytham was able to demonstrate that the entire sheaf of rays reflected from an object, not just the ones hitting the lens at a right angle, reflect out of the lens so as to congregate most densely at a well-defined focal point. So it doesn't matter whether they hit at a right angle or not, he could show that they would all converge at one particular point and then go out in the opposite direction. Okay. Second, now don't be, don't be afraid about this picture, I'll try to explain it, but it is, it's a diagram from uh, his optics, from Ibn al-Haytham's optics. Second, the diagram of Ibn al-Haytham appended to his discussion makes it clear that he thought when light is reflected from an illuminated object towards the lens, the sheaf of rays are refracted in such a way that the image seen through the lens is reversed and upside down. Um, so here, to give you a sense, uh, if we allow this to be the object that's seen, so the, this point here, P and Q, or you want to call them R and R prime here, um, if they go in, what's going to happen, the R will come in, it'll reflect uh, to this point, 
r prime here is going to go in, and you can show that it would reflect here. But now you see that where r had been on top and r prime on the bottom, we now have r on the bottom and r prime on the top as, as viewed. The point is, and I don't want to go into the whole of the detail, he actually knew that um, one of the aberrations of a converging lens like this is that the image seen is upside down and reversed. He recognized that. By the way, that should sound familiar. That was point three when we were talking about Kepler. Um, so in sum, what Ibn al-Haytham recognized is that when light reflected from a visible object passes through the right uh, sort of lens, all the rays converge at a focal point where the image formed is just the reverse of the object producing the image. In short, Ibn al-Haytham was on the doorstep of a correct theory of converging lenses, and he did think that the eye was a type of lens. So when these points about lenses are added to Ibn al-Haytham's earlier theory about direct vision, we see that he had virtually all the elements associated with Kepler's and our modern analysis of vision. Yet Ibn al-Haytham failed to combine his thesis about light and vision with his, discovery, his discoveries about lenses. Why? I contend that for Ibn al-Haytham, the discoveries about the formation of images by lenses were simply irrelevant to his theory of vision precisely because any visual theory integrated with the theory of converging lenses predicts that the seeing object is upside down and reversed, just the opposite of the way we actually perceive it or see it. The mathematical theory of Kepler and ourselves would in Ibn al-Haytham's eyes, simply be empirically inadequate. We don't experience the, way, uh, experience the world the way the theory predicts. The moral of the story, for, uh, for Ibn al-Haytham, um, theories always give way to observation. Now, in contrast, Kepler seemed hardly to give a thought to the fact that his theory requires that the image on the retinal wall is inverted and reversed from the object in the world. In fact, the only nod that Kepler gives to this inconvenient fact is in the preface to his chapter on animal vision. And there, he says he will leave it to the natural philosopher to figure out what goes on beyond the eye. For, and I quote, the optical writer's arsenal does not extend beyond the first opaque wall encountered within the eye." End quote. In short, for Kepler, it would seem that mathematical elegance trumps empirical phenomena. So what he says is, the mathematics actually shows that the figure should be reversed. We don't see the world that way, but you know what? The mathematics is just so damn pretty, it's got to be right. You natural philosophers figure out how the object gets seen the other way around. I'll just trust you to do that. That's just a, a problem for the student. Um, but it's, it's still there. I mean, it's, it's upside down. He doesn't know how to explain why we see things right side up. But it's only later that we get an explanation of that. All right, so that's, you know, Ibn al-Haytham had basically all the elements. But he's like, oh, no, 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 no. We should we'd be seeing things upside down. Bad. Um, Kepler, it's like, ooh, but the mathematics is good. We'll go with the mathematics. There you go. It's, Seems like a theory that gets things upside down and backwards, you might find empirically inadequate, and my figures did. All right, let's move on to the, the second one, the physics of Ibn Sina. Um, apparently, he really was handsome. Uh, stories go that uh, he, in his own autobiography, he would say that he would walk down the street and people would stop and gaze at, on his beauty. So uh, he was not short of uh, self-confidence and a bit arrogant. But a fun guy, too. He knows how to tell a good joke. Um, a second example of the tendency of Muslim natural philosophers uh, to approach topics of physics um, quantitatively or mathematically is the physics of Ibn Sina, the Avicenna, again, of Latin fame. Now, in the Muslim world, Ibn Sina was, without question, the intellectual giant. He made innovations in logic, psychology, metaphysics, as well as advancements in medicine and astronomy. Indeed, there are few philosophical uh, and scientific fields of inquiry to which Ibn Sina didn't put his hand and give them his unique touch. The science of physics is no exception. 
Now, again, in order to help you appreciate Ibn Sina's innovations in physics, let me quickly situate his thought between the physics of Aristotle at one extreme and that of Isaac Newton on the other. But before that, however, let me make two caveats. First, I'm going to present Aristotelian physics as it was understood in medieval Islamic lands. And as such, my account may sound odd to those versed in the thought of the historical thought of Aristotle himself. So, for example, where Aristotle preferred to speak uh, in terms of a mover, medieval Arabic-speaking natural philosophers preferred to speak in terms of the Arabic mile, that is, motive force or inclination. Second, while Aristotle happily identified the ultimate mover of the cosmos, his celebrated unmoved mover, with God, Ibn Sina was far less willing to do so. And interestingly, Ibn Sina's unwillingness on this point was not due to a desire to separate physics and theology, but rather because he thought that Aristotle's unmoved mover, and indeed any impersonal force, failed to describe the God of the Quran. It simply wasn't God. So, I mean, there's, there's a difference between the historical Aristotle and what we're about to see now. Now, with these uh, caveats in place, let's now turn to Aristotelian physics done in Islamic lands. Now, again, uh, Aristotle, the natural uh, philosopher par excellence of the ancient world, argued that the force producing motion in a body is proportional to the velocity of the moving body and the weight, or somewhat anachronistically, the mass. So Ibn Sina formalizes Aristotle's fundamental law of motion as force equals mass times velocity. Now, and I'm being a little bit anachronistic here, and I understand that. Um, it's in part in order to make comparisons with what's going to go on in Newton. And so I, I realize there's a sort of incommensurability of the two theories, but you'll see why, by putting this, hopefully you'll see why Aristotle, or at least Addison is Aristotle, and, um, and Newton are doing some of the things that they're doing, where they differ, and where they agree. Um, all right. Now, what this law here, force equals mass times velocity, implies is that a force is needed to maintain the velocity of a moving object. In other words, for medieval Muslim Aristotelians, um, as long as some object is in motion, there must always be some force acting upon it to explain its being in motion. Consequently, a natural enough question arises about the continuous motive force during projectile motion. So, for example, when you throw a ball or shoot an arrow, what keeps the ball or arrow going after you're no longer in contact with it? Um, now, Aristotle's answer is that when you throw a ball or shoot an arrow, you also stir up the air around the object. And this stirred up air then acts as the continuous motive force keeping the object in motion during its flight. So when I throw the ball, I also uh, stir up the air, and the air uh, will keep the object going, and it'll stir up the air, and it'll keep the object going. All right. Now, if you find this answer unsatisfying, if not even just a wee bit on the silly side, you would not be alone. One of Aristotle's sixth-century Greek commentators, John Philoponus, argued that Aristotle's idea verged on the absurd. One of his many complaints is that while the motion of your hand and bowstring might initially stir up the air, the question still remains, well, what keeps the air moving? so as to move the arrow along. The problem concerning the continuous force acting upon the air just is the same as the one about what keeps the arrow moving. We've gotten no closer to solving the problem of projectile motion, says Philoponus. So instead of air acting as the force on the projectile, Philoponus suggested that when, for example, you shoot an arrow, you impress a force into it. This impressed force, which Philoponus called inclination, it's the Greek rope, or Arabic mild, or we had seen before, 
works something like gasoline. And give me a pinch, you know, a, a pinch of salt here. This is a, not a perfect analogy, but hopefully it'll make the point. You put so much inclination in, and you get so much motion out. At which point the inclination gets used up, just like gasoline, and the object stops moving. Now, Philopinus' theory of inclination was very influential among later Muslim physicists, who certainly preferred it to Aristotle's solution to the problem of projectile motion. Now, we shall return to it shortly, but for now I just simply want to note that Philopinus' account of impressed force makes the inclination or for yeah, inclination self-expending. In other words, the very effect of the inclination, namely the motion, uses up the impressed force. Consequently, no external force is needed to explain the gradual decrease in a projectile's inclination. So it's you shoot the arrow and the force itself is going to eventually wear out and that's why the arrow drops. Um, and that's the sort of element of, of philopinus is there. Now, before turning to Ibn Sina, let me briefly jump ahead to the account of motion found in Isaac Newton. Now, while Newton's contribution to modern physics are inestimable, and here you just need to think of the theory of universal gravity, his calculus, and the like, he is perhaps uh, best known for his three laws of motion. And so those laws are Every body, that, uh, every body continues in its state of rest or of uniform motion in a right line unless it's compelled to change that state by forces impressed upon it. This is the so-called law of inertia. Law two, the change of motion is proportional to the motive force impressed. Force equals mass times acceleration, F equals ma. And then finally, three, for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. So I want to consider these laws a bit more closely. The law of inertia is historically important because, in effect, it is an outright rejection of the Aristotelian law of motion. Again, force equals mass times velocity. For the Aristotelian law requires some force to maintain the constant velocity of a moving object. Whereas the idea of inertia implies that no such force is necessary. Once you get the thing moving, it'll go on on its own. Now, Newton's second law, force equals mass times acceleration, states the conditions under which motion is, um, which a force is required for motion, namely when there is acceleration. That is, any change in motion, whether with respect to velocity or direction. Now, the third law for every action, there, there is an equal and opposite reaction, is a bit more complicated, but it's also less important for our story. Newton was what we call a corpuscularian. I missed, sorry about that. Um, that is, he believed that the objects around us are composed of tiny billiard ball-like atoms. So trying to calculate the millions, even billions, of individual motions of all the atoms making up even normal sized objects, let alone a massive one like the Earth or Moon, would be nigh on impossible. The third law, therefore, allows one in effect to say that all of an object's individual atomic motions balance each other out, such that the object can be treated like a mere point or single atom. In other words, Given the third law, the mass of a body can be treated, at least for the purposes of mathematical calculations, as if it's all connected at some, uh, it's all concentrated at some single center of gravity. So the whole purpose of, for every action there's equal opposite reaction, is to allow you to cancel out all the various individual motions of the atoms and treat it as if all of the weight or mass is at one point. So it just makes, makes the math easier, is what it comes down to. All right, we can now appreciate Ibn Sina's, uh, how Ibn Sina anticipated elements of Newton's three laws. But first, let me be very clear. I am not, and I repeat, not claiming that Ibn Sina was the medieval Muslim Newton or has a physics even remotely like uh, Newton's. Still, Ibn Sina clearly recognized that Aristotle's law of motion and Philopinus' conception of inclination were wanting. 
And his emendations of those notions were in the direction of Newton's three laws. So let me consider how Ibn Sina anticipated those laws now in reverse order. I want you to recall that the motivation for Newton's third law was to allow him to treat the numerous corpuscles that make up a body as if they were localized in a single point. Since Ibn Sina was not a corpuscularian, instead believed the bodies are continuous wholes, his physics has no real need for this law. For the purposes of calculation, Ibn Sina regularly treated a moving body as a point mass, and even provided very technical argumentations to justify this mathematization of physical bodies. And just as a side, he has a notion of a limit that pretty much parallels our modern notion of the limit as it appears in the calculus. So I mean, this guy, I mean, all of these points about treating things, uh, uh, motion and bodies as points, he's got all the metaphysics and mathematics to explain it and do it. So in other words, for both Ibn Sina and Newton, large composite bodies could be treated like single points, at least for the purposes of doing physics. Again, however, Ibn Sina's point-like analysis of motion is merely a side note. How he anticipated Newton's second and first law is our real focus. So recall that the Aristotelian law of motion, that force equals mass times velocity, made the motive force proportional to the weight of the moving object and the velocity at which it is moving. Now, Ibn Sina found this formalization of motion wanting for two important reasons. First, he observed that the closer a moving object is to its natural place, the faster its velocity. So I actually just grabbed this off the web. Uh, these aren't anything like his numbers, but it is the idea that as it drops, it starts, you know, the, the, the moving object begins to accelerate. That's the point. So don't, don't trust these. This, this is modern. But uh, the idea of accelerating, Avicenna has that. Um, so while the idea of a natural place is foreign to contemporary physics, the example that Ibn Sina gave to make his point is not. He claimed that if you carefully observe a falling object, you can see that it accelerates the closer it gets to the ground. Given this observation, Ibn Sina's first complaint against making force equals mass times velocity is that the formula is incomplete because it does not account for acceleration. Um, and as far as I know, Alice is the first one to recognize that acceleration is a phenomenon that needs to be explained. Um, I'm not saying there are others, but I mean, he really points to it as somebody else needs, this needs to get done. Unfortunately, Ibn Sina himself did not provide an analysis of acceleration, but he did recognize the importance of it for a complete mathematical account of motion. His second complaint against the Aristotelian law of motion, again, force equals mass times velocity, well, perhaps less obviously connected with Newton's, um, <coughs> Newton's own insight. So it's in fact, I'm sorry, getting there. While perhaps less obviously connected with Newton's own formula, force equals mass times acceleration, it is in fact more important for getting to Newton's insight. Now, Ibn Sina complained that his predecessor's analysis of motion failed to appreciate the role of frictional forces. Thus observed um, Ibn Sina, if the motive force is proportional to the weight and velocity, that is the distance and time moved, then, for example, if two horses can move a load 100 meters in five minutes, then one horse, in principle, should be able to move the same load either 50 meters in five minutes or 100 meters in 10 minutes again, as the formula suggests. Ibn Sina objected, uh, however, simply noting that half of the force might not overcome the frictional coefficient. In short, one horse might not be able to move the load at all, which two horses can move. And so he recognizes you need to talk about a medium. Okay, even if the force can overcome the frictional coefficient, Ibn Sina continued, the Aristotelian law fails to take into account the frictional force of the surrounding medium through which the object is moving. Thus, a ball thrown with a given force through the air 
travels at one velocity, but at an entirely different velocity if thrown with the exact same force through, I'm sorry, it travels at one velocity if, uh, if thrown through the air, and a different velocity um, if it's thrown uh, through water, and even less so, it moves even uh, slower, the denser the medium is. Um, in short, any adequate law of motion Ibn Sina believed must take into account the surrounding frictional forces of the medium. Now, this last point about frictional force of the medium allows us to appreciate how Ibn Sina anticipated Newton's first law of motion, the law of inertia. Since philosophy talks are not mystery novels, let me start by telling you Ibn Sina's conclusion first. He wants to show that accepting something like the law of inertia amounts to getting something for nothing, uh, getting indeed infinitely more than you put in. Now, to see this point, I want you to recall that Philoponus had introduced a notion of impressed force. Ibn Sina also adopted this idea in his physics. However, while Philoponus had thought that the impressed force was self-expending, it could explain its own dissipation, Ibn Sina strenuously argued that the inclination is used up only if some external force acts upon the moving object, like the frictional force of the medium. Now, Ibn Sina's exact argument against the self-expanding nature of inclination is a complex one. His criticisms involve laying out all the logically possible ways an impressed force might exhaust itself and then showing in detail, sometimes painfully, uh, such that all of them in one way or another run afoul of the best theories of motion and causation of the time. Consequently, what I'm about to say is meant merely to give a flavor of the intuition behind Ibn Sina's elaborate argument. So I'm, this is a, a lot of hand-waving going on here, guys. So according to the Aristotelian law of motion, the motive force is the cause of the object's motion. Additionally, for Philoponus, the motion of the object is the cause of the cessation of the motive force. So we can formalize these two points thus. Force is the cause of the motion. The motion here is the cause of the cessation of the motion. Now, no Aristotelian would ever consider causes identical with their effects. Nonetheless, there is a type of equality between the mover and what is moved at least in the case of physical causes. Consequently, and allowing again for a lot of hand-waving on my part, Ibn Sina viewed the above formalization as roughly equivalent to the claim that the motive force equals the motion, and the motion equals the force that causes the cessation of the motion. That is, um, something along those lines. Now, given this formalization, it doesn't take much to see that if the motive force does bring about its own dissipation, then something has gone terribly wrong. For the motive force becomes equivalent to the cessation or absence of the motive force, which Avicenna finds absurd. So it's the idea that something should essentially be the cause of its own non-existence. Well, if it's essentially the cause of its own non-existence, it shouldn't exist at all, is the idea. Thus concludes Ibn Sina, the impressed force cannot be self-expending, but ceases only if an external force acts upon the moving object. Now, using this conclusion, Ibn Sina next turned to the problem of projectile motion. But he now has us consider what would happen if, for example, you or I were to shoot a ball into an infinite void space. So what would happen? What do you think Newton would say would happen? It would keep on going. And when will it stop? One year? Two years? Three years? Keep on going eternally, right? Or infinitely in time. Uh, so if no force is acting upon the ball, and by definition there are no forces in a void, then according to the law of inertia, the ball should continue on indefinitely, neither slowing down nor changing its course. This point is exactly what Ibn Sina concluded from his thought experiment as well. Except 
While we sit happily with this conclusion, Ibn Sina did not. In fact, he thinks that such a conclusion is in massive conflict with observation. For, protested Ibn Sina, we are finite agents. Whereas if the ball we shot remained in motion without ever ceasing its motion, there would be an infinite effect, since the ball would continue on without <coughs> stopping for all eternity or for an infinite amount of time. Now, while Ibn Sina was suspicious of the various ratios, proportions, and formulas that his predecessors had used to quantify motion, he is certain, as were his predecessors, that one never gets an infinite effect from a finite cause. Such an outcome is tantamount to something's coming, something's coming from nothing. And yet, that is precisely what the thought experiment seems to entail. The law of inertia itself seems to entail. Now, to be exact, Ibn Sina's purpose in presenting this thought experiment was to establish the following conditional statement. If there is infinite void space, then a finite force could produce a motion that never stops, slows down, or alters. That is to say, it would undergo, in this case, no form of alteration, but would continue in constant velocity. Now, since Ibn Sina took it uh, as impossible that a finite force could produce what he considered to be an infinite effect, he concluded that an infinite void space was impossible. So you got this conditional, if there's an infinite void space, then a finite should be able to produce an infinite effect. Can't produce an infinite effect, therefore there can't be an infinite void space. If P then Q, Q is not the case, then B is not the case. That's as simple as that. Now, in contrast, Newton, arguing from the exact same initial premise, assumes that an infinite void space is possible. And so he concludes that in principle, a finite force can produce a motion that never stops or varies. One man's modus ponens, folks, is another man's modus tollens. So the question is, why the change of assumption? Why, why is this the change in the basic presuppositions that are motivating this argument? So at least part of the answer is that in 1277, the Bishop of Paris, Stephen Tempier, condemned 219 theses, said you can't teach them here in Paris, which among which was the belief that God could not create a void. So based on our arguments by Ibn Sina and others, it was said that it was a void is impossible, not even God could create it, because even God can't do what's impossible. Now, the result of the 1277 condemnation was that natural philosophers had to take seriously the suggestion that a void was possible, since God could create it, thus making it possible. Among the first to take this possibility seriously was the medieval priest, John Buridine, probably most well-known for his ass, but you can ask me about that one later, um, who drew heavily upon the Latin translation of none other than Ibn Sina to develop a theory of impetus. Buridine's work on impetus, in turn, influenced Galileo Galilei, and it was through the writings of Galileo that Newton formed his own conception of inertia. Here, for better or worse, theological concerns replaced physical considerations, and the outcome was genuine scientific advancement. Okay, now I really am in the, the, the last stretch here. I don't even have a page left, so I'm just going to have one playful sort of musing here. So let me conclude with one brief musing concerning the history of Islamic science and perhaps the enterprise of science itself. Now, as an historian of Islamic science, a question with which I am regularly confronted in both the scholarly literature, and I'm not making this up, even by folks on airplanes. I tell them they find out that I uh, do Islamic science, and the following question inevitably ensues. So why wasn't there anything akin to the European scientific re revolution in the Islamic world? And I, 
I was on a flight to uh, uh, um, Providence, Rhode Island, and the guy from you know would not let me go on that one. He just kept pushing and pushing. So I, I've been thinking about it because of this guy. Of course, he had had a lot of uh, Bloody Marys or something, I think. But anyway, it got me thinking, and I do come across this in the, uh, the literature as well. So the question usually assumes that the Islamic world had some deficiency or fault that prevented an Islamic scientific revolution. This deprivation has been identified with, at least in the scholarly literature, uh, to list two of the more extreme responses. The Arabs' incapacity for abstract thought, that's Pierre Duin, or, and this is very common, uh, the Islamic religion's retarding influence. And you can see this even in the works of Dmitri Gutas now, and it's, it shows up in others as well. Now, I think a more fruitful line of pursuit is not what did medieval Muslim scientists lack, but what did early modern scientists have? So it's not why were these guys deficient, but what extra thing did the Europeans perhaps have? Now, the two cases that we've already seen today at least suggest that certain European scientists were willing to set aside the demands of empirical adequacy and take a chance on mathematical elegance or even theological consistency. These hunches turned out to be lucky ones. But of course, if luck played a role in the case of Kepler and Newton, then you cannot really fault the medieval Muslim scientists for not being lucky. Additionally, these two cases tentatively suggest and admittedly inferences based upon two instances are going to always be hasty. But they suggest, at least, that at moments of scientific discovery, there sometimes are, mixed with careful observation and mathematical theories, good hunches and lucky breaks. In short, it would seem that the creative scientist must know when to set aside the demands of observation and current theory and simply run with an idea. And this is not to say that observation and the demands of theory are not essential to good science. They are, in my opinion, crucial to it. Still, sometimes, sometimes, a bit of luck is all the difference in the world. Thank you very much.